turn with me to the First Corinthians. We'll be reading chapter one. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, our brother and our brother Sunethanes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. I thank I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you in the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of the Son, of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it, is, for it has been reported to me by close people that there is quarreling among you. My brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Cephas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwall. Where is the one who is wise? 
Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the in the wisdom of God, he the in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that in no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Open your Bibles now to 2 Corinthians for our message this morning. We're starting a new book today in 2 Corinthians. And I looked back through the, the um, sermon records, at least the ones available on the website. It looks like it was about six years ago that the, ser- the um, pastors preached through the book of 1 Corinthians. But I don't know that, that we've ever gotten to 2 Corinthians. I wasn't encouraged by the introduction to the book in, in one of the commentaries. It said, few portions of the New Testament pose as many problems for translators and interpreters as does 2 Corinthians. Few, therefore, are the preachers who undertake a systematic exposition of its contents. So I'm taking a bit of a risk here and, and um, hope that you're willing to, to uh, correct me if I go too far astray. But as, as I studied the, the book, and particularly the, the backstory, I, I realized it has a lot of relevance for us today. It speaks to issues facing our culture in general, but it also speaks to issues facing our church particularly. There were many ways that the early church struggled, and it struggled with, with forces within and without that threatened to undo it. But the God who protected and preserved the church then continues to um, protect and guide us today. 
Paul wrote this letter not as a, just a bit of a, a friendly correspondence to the church, but it was in response to some significant issues that were present. And for us to understand that the letter and, and the, the things that he's talking about, we need to understand some of the backstory here. So I'm going to spend most of the time discussing this, the context for this letter, um, because it's just a little bit too much to try to, to um, give in summary before we dive into the book. So um, hopefully this doesn't feel too much like a lecture, um, but I, I think as we understand this, it, it helps us as we go forward. We call this book 2 Corinthians because it's the second of the two letters to the Corinthians that we have in our Bibles. But it seems that Paul wrote about four letters to the Corinthians, and and two of them were apparently lost and and, um, not part of of the inspired um, canon. So we first um, have Paul meeting the Corinthians on his second missionary journey. And, and so he went to Corinth. Corinth is a city in modern Greece, not far from Athens. And so we remember the story of when Paul went to Athens, the sermon on Mars Hill when, when he preached about their altar to the unknown God. And the men of Athens liked to debate ideas. And it says in Acts 17, 21, they would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Corinth wasn't that far away from Athens. It was in Greece. And before um, these cities were taken over or defeated by the Roman Empire, which was about 146 BC, they were part of the ancient Greek Empire, which was also a major world power at the time. But then Corinth lay in ruins for about 100 years um, before Rome rebuilt it. And by the time Paul came along, it had been rebuilt as a city of Roman pride. And it had actually become one of the largest and most prosperous cities in Greece. The one historian says Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. And one way they did this, he said, all sorts of Corinthians, even slaves, are mentioned in inscriptions, often paid for and erected by and for themselves, that describe their contributions to building projects or their status in clubs. The number of such inscriptions is staggering. So all across Corinth, you had these inscriptions or, or monuments that people would build to themselves and that they would, would um, pay for it and put their name on it and describe what kind of contributions they had made to whatever um, issue that they had contributed to. One other um, cultural kind of commentary that I think helps us understand, particularly 1 Corinthians 1 that we just read, is that the, the Corinthian people lived in an honor-shame culture. And in such a culture, issues of morality or right and wrong are not determined by objective law or reason, but by its effect on one's reputation. So your reputation or your social standing was of crucial importance. And this honor-shame um, culture thing still exists in the Eastern world today, and it, it's completely different from our Western culture, and, and we don't understand it because we're based on a rule of law. And, and so right and wrong is determined by innocence or guilt. You're either innocent or you're guilty, and it's based on reason and objective um, information. 
in the book um, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus by Nabil Qureshi. He um, is a former Muslim, and, and he describes this, this clash of cultures because his family moved to America, and he was raised in a Muslim family that lived by these traditional Eastern values of honor and shame. And so, for example, he said uh, when he was living down in Virginia Beach area, he and, and some of his cousins went into a restaurant, and they would get you know, water with their fast food, because being thrifty like we are, it, it's cheaper to get water. But then you take your, your water cup to the soda fountain and fill it with soda, because you get a, you know, you're getting soda, and it, it's better. And as long as you didn't get caught doing it, then it's not a problem. There's no moral problem with stealing, because you don't get caught. But then he, he described a situation in which his cousin got called out by one of the employees and said, hey, you can't do that you got water. And, and, and so the, the, the person was, was shamed, and he felt bad because he got caught. He didn't feel bad because he was stealing the soda, but because he got shamed for doing it. And so his, his recovery was to say, oh, no, I wasn't getting soda. I was getting water. And so he was, he was trying to, to recover his honor. And, and so in, in this honor-shame culture, um, the, the voices that matter are not law and reason so much as authority and status. And so he was describing how it was difficult for him to leave um, the, the Muslim religion because he was transgressing the authority of his parents, whom, who he highly respected. And so with, with a bit of that understanding, 1 Corinthians 1 takes on a completely different flavor. It's not just saying, oh yeah, be humble, but he's talking about God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. No longer do you put your confidence in something who is in someone who is strong or someone who is wise, but you put your confidence in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. So, so Paul is writing here in 2 Corinthians to these same people, these people that cared a lot about what other people thought about them. And it also mattered to them who they followed because it could bring you honor or shame, which is, is again, where we see Paul addressing these um, conflicts over who their leader was. They also had a reputation for being very competitive on the economic scale. They would stop at nothing to outdo their rivals. It was all about getting ahead and getting the best deal. We know other people like that. And then, of course, there were sports. The, the city of Corinth had, had periodic athletic contests, and we're familiar with the Olympic Games, and, and those were based in Olympia, Greece. But Corinth had its own games called the Isthmian Games, which were almost as popular as the Olympic Games. And they also had other games called the Caesarean Games and Imperial Games that were held every four years. And so there seemed like there's always some sort of, of important games and, and sporting events going on. And one of the most important and, and highly honored um, officials in the city was the one who was elected to be responsible to run the games. And so this was a big deal in the city of Corinth. And incidentally, one of the commentators said that, that all these games and the events surrounding them might have increased the market for tent making, which Paul did along with Aquila and Priscilla during his stay in Corinth. 
And finally, Corinth was also a destination for religious pilgrims visiting the temple of Aphrodite on the mountain overlooking Corinth. Aphrodite was the goddess of love, beauty, and fertility. And so you don't have to use too much imagination to figure out how they worshipped this god. And so in ancient Greece, the temple of Aphrodite had many sacred prostitutes. And it's not clear that, that this practice of, of prostitution, sacred prostitution was still present under the Romans, but, but sexual expression in general was very much a part of the culture, particularly during their religious festivals. Finally, geographically, Corinth had a harbor and sat on an isthmus it, it, or a land bridge that connected upper Greece to, to, lower, to lower Greece for the Peloponnesus. And, and so sometimes the, the boats, in, instead of traveling around southern Greece, because the seas were pretty stormy in that, that area, it was, it was cheaper and safer for them to unload their cargo at Corinth and then transport by land across the isthmus with their boat, carry their boat or haul it across land, is about 45 miles to, to the other side, load everything back up and keep sailing. There's a lot of commerce, a lot of trade going on through this city. So it's a pretty, pretty big place and a lot of, of immorality and um, just the, the usual things that, that you associate with big cities. Not exactly the kind of place you'd probably choose to, to raise a family in. But you have to, to admire Paul's strategy here in his missionary journeys. He, he wanted to spread the gospel to as many people as possible, and so he goes to the big cities to do it. Like I said, he arrived here on his second missionary journey, in this, so this was about AD 50, the year 50. Um, and as usual, he began to, to reach out to the Jews that were in the city. There were Jews there, and we read about this in the book of Acts. And, but they eventually got tired of him, chased him out of the synagogue, and so he reached out to the Gentiles and um, established a church. And he spent about 18 months here in Corinth teaching the word of God to the Jews and the Greeks. So he knew these people fairly well. It wasn't just a, you know, kind of um, a, a week stop or something like that. He, he spent a year and a half here, and when, when he taught them, he, he you know, worked with them intently. And, and so there were a number of letters that were written here, and it's not entirely clear that the sequence of events, but if you kind of piece together comments he makes in, in different letters, you, you get a, a bit of a picture. And so 1 Corinthians was written to address some significant problems um, such as the sexual immorality in chapter 5. But before Paul wrote that letter, he had sent Timothy to address some problems, which we see in 1 Corinthians 4.17. He says, that is why I sent Timothy. And then he wrote 1 Corinthians. But then Paul himself visited Corinth and described it as a painful visit, which is 2 Corinthians 2.1. He says he made this painful visit. And he also talks about a painful letter that he wrote to them. And that was apparently delivered by Titus. And so that's the other letter that we don't have. And he talks about that letter in 2 Corinthians 2, 9 and 7, 8. And then in 2 Corinthians 7, 13, he says um, that he rejoiced at the joy of Titus. And so it seems like that letter was, was well received and um, his spirit was refreshed by the Corinthians. And so now Paul is writing what we call the book of 2 Corinthians, and he, he's anticipating making yet another visit to Corinth, which would be his third visit 
And while he's writing this, he is in Macedonia. So this is the, the church at Corinth. I think of it as a blend between the, the financial power of, of New York City and the immorality of Las Vegas. And that there was a church there at all speaks to the power of the gospel. But the people there, while they were Christians, they, they still brought with them the, the cultural influence of living in this kind of city. And you see it, for example, in the, the sexual immorality that he addressed in 1 Corinthians. But maybe more pervasive but more subtle than the, the blatant sins like that was a drive within the culture for status, power, and achievement. And it was that drive that threatened their ability to live in humility before God. It was a real threat to their Christian life. And, and this, this drive is not the type of thing that you adopt consciously or pursue intentionally. But when you're in a culture that is saturated with this, this drive for achievement and power, it starts to work its way into your heart. And you have to be intentional about redirecting your heart to something else. And so for us, whether it's a bigger house or a longer vacation or a newer car, the lust for more is, is not driven by what we actually need, but by comparing what we have with what others have around us. And so there will always be other people with more stuff than you have. Maybe it just means that they don't know how to control their spending, or maybe it means that God has given them more opportunities and he will hold them responsible. But, but our hearts tend to see what others have, and, and we're calling out for more. We want more, and we are driven by this, this lust for more. So the, the people of Corinth, like us today, cared about status and achievements. And in that way, they were a lot like us. It's, it's easy for us to think that they were completely different from us today, and, and these letters are a bit remote. But Paul is writing to, to human beings just like us. And we see here in these letters how they acted toward each other. There was, there was real conflict. There was sharp disagreement. But we also see how they ought to act towards one another, how the ministry of grace and how the direction of God in their heart can redeem and restore our broken and conflicted ways of relating to each other. And I think the church here at Corinth provides a great model for us to examine ourselves. Their, their drive for status and achievement wasn't limited to, to themselves. It also extended to their expectations for their church leaders. And so it was important to have the, the leaders, or the ones in positions of authority, to have high status, and that would, would bring more honor to them as a church. And so it was this dilemma that caused a conflict between Paul and the church. The church wasn't satisfied with Paul. He wasn't meeting their expectations. He didn't have the status that they wanted. And there were some other people that, that preached better, that had a higher um, status than he did. He called them super apostles, um, somewhat sarcastically, and, and they were starting to follow after them. And so one of the main reasons that Paul writes this letter is to defend him, his identity as an apostle. He argues that it's not how flashy you are, or how charismatic you are, or how well-polished your presentations are, or how esteemed you are by your admirers that determines your position and calling before God. And so he identifies himself as a servant of Christ. And he's not doing this just to protect himself, 
but he's trying to defend the church from the destruction that will come from being sucked into following false teachers. And he says in in chapter 11, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things." So Paul here was up against these super apostles. These were the leaders that captured the hearts of the church in Corinth. They were smooth talkers and powerful preachers, but they had a corrupted Christianity. But because it it, it felt right, it seemed good to them. It appealed to the the things of the the Corinthian culture um, appealed to, and it was shaping their hearts. So Paul is pushing back on them here. He, he's rebuking them. He says, if you put up with these false teachings, you are accepting a different gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will lead you astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So he appeals to them here, not with, with harsh rhetoric and, and anger, but, but with loving and earnest appeal of a fellow servant. He doesn't try to match the boasting of the false teachers, and he doesn't try to make himself equal with them, but he humbles himself. He says, if, if you want me to boast, I will boast in my weakness. He says, I will tell you how many times I was beaten and stoned and shipwrecked in toil and hardship, in hunger and thirst, in cold and exposure. In other words, Paul's saying there, there's nothing. There's nothing in himself that gives him the status and achievement that their culture demands of a leader. He says, if, if you want a leader that everyone looks up to and admires because of his smooth talking and worldly accomplishments, don't look to me, because that's not what the gospel is about. So, in other words, what we have here between Paul and the church is real conflict. He's not just debating some nuance over theological terminology, as important as that may be. And it's not just a difference of personal preference or conscience like he talked about in 1 Corinthians 8. He is defending the essence of the gospel and his calling as a servant of Christ. It's not as glamorous as the Corinthian church wishes it was. But if they continue on this path of following the super apostles and feeding on the teachings of a different gospel, they will find themselves following a false gospel and they will be deceived as Eve was when she took the fruit. They will be following messengers of Satan who are dressed as angels of light and servants of righteousness. So this is a serious problem. It is a deadly problem. And he appeals to them not to get sucked into the glamour and appeal of status and power, but he presents the truth of the gospel. And he appeals to the true beauty and ultimate power and the fullness of wisdom that will be revealed through the person of Christ. Chapter 3, 18, it says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So our glory does not come from ourselves, it comes from Christ. Chapter 4, verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that is the hope of the gospel. That is the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is calling his readers to, even in the face of such intense opposition. So let's look at our text, 2 Corinthians um, chapter 2, just verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see here, Paul begins his letter with the standard greeting. He identifies himself as an author, and then he further identifies himself as as an apostle or servant of Christ. But given what we know about the situation, it takes on a little bit more significance that he identifies himself with Christ. That the super apostles here were threatening the church. They were undermining the truth of the gospel. And Paul is reminding them here that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. It's by the will of God. He's affirming his divine calling to this position. This was not his own decision. This wasn't something that he, he decided to go into himself. And we know his story. He, he was actively opposed to the gospel until God took over his life. And then he also mentions that he's with Timothy, our brother. And, and we know Timothy has had some interaction with the Corinthians. And in Acts 18, Silas and Timothy joined Paul um, in Corinth on his first visit there. So they know Timothy as a fellow laborer. And it, it may be that he includes Timothy here to, to help establish Paul's credibility, saying, I'm not working alone, but there's other brothers in Christ with me. And it also might be a ways of reminding them that, that Timothy is still a brother, because um, it, it seems like Timothy may have been sent to Corinth at some point to either deliver a letter or to deal with problems. And, and Paul is saying, Timothy is still our brother. And then Paul states who the letter is to, to the church of God that is at Corinth. He calls them the church of God, not the church of Paul or the church of Aquila. He reminds them that they are the church of God. Their identity as a church is not dependent on their leader, and their responsibility is not ultimately to Paul or any other leadership, but they will answer to God who is the head of the church. And then notice his greeting to them. Notice that the grace and the mercy that he extends to these people who are either actively opposing him or at least passively opposing him by following after other teachers. He doesn't begin with with warnings and, and admonishment. He extends a hand of mercy, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, this really is the best thing that, that we can pray for each other. We may disagree on issues before us. We might have differences of perspectives on how to proceed in the face of adversity. But in the face of trouble or adversity, and in the face of people who, here who were consumed for, with a passion for cheap success and glitzy status, Paul offers to them genuine hope. Grace to you. God's unmerited favor, his gift, his graciousness, his goodness. It is through grace, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, that Jesus Christ and God our Father loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope. And the result of God's grace to us is peace. We have peace not because we've accomplished what we set out to do, but 
because of God's grace. And because of God's grace, we can also have peace when others are not extending their grace to us. If our well-being and happiness and contentment is dependent on others treating us well, we will not be at peace. We will not be well. But if we are anchored in the knowledge of God and experience His grace, if we've placed our confidence in the truth of His favor to us, which is manifested by the death and resurrection of Christ for our sins, and if we're walking in humility and submission before Him, we can have peace even in the midst of adversity and even in the face of uncertainty. And so then he goes on in the first 11 verses of this chapter to to praise the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And and Paul was writing this from a a position of of significant personal turmoil and personal attacks on his credibility and, and being doubted by the ones for whom he had suffered and sacrificed to deliver the gospel. But he finds grace, peace, and comfort by abiding in the Father. He knows who he is, and he does not get undone by the turmoil he faces. He's not just being stoic here either, but he's actively reaching out to these people in love. He's not withdrawing in the face of, of being hurt, but he becomes even more vulnerable with them. He opens his heart, and he shares his personal experience and inner struggles in a way that we don't see in any of his other letters. So I would encourage you to read this book of of 2 Corinthians several times throughout this week and consider the context of of the personal attacks that Paul was facing. Consider the culture of status and power and competition that was present in Corinth. Paul says, We are not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the power comes from God and not from us. Humility is not just laying aside your status symbols in order to serve where needed in the church. Humility is also being willing to serve alongside others who seem more gifted than you. It's not just stepping down from places of high status. It's also stepping up from places of shame. So are you willing to let these scriptures redefine what you think about yourself and how and reorder your values? Consider also the difficult relationships that you have and how they might be reframed in light of Paul's appeal to the church. He says in chapter 5, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So God, through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Will you be reconciled to him? And will you be reconciled to your brother? That is the call of this letter. That is the call of the gospel. We are God's church. May we be faithful. May he have mercy on us all.